It's the Sleep Well, Stay Well podcast. Here we go with Malia Jacobson as your host. Hello and welcome to the Sleep Well, Stay Well podcast. I'm your host, sleep and health journalist, Malia Jacobson. Welcome and I hope you're doing well. Welcome to new listeners. I am very sorry that I didn't have an episode up last week for you. Things just got crazy. Life got crazy. January has been an incredibly busy month. I got hit with a bunch of deadlines and I am juggling remote schooling for three children still and some things just didn't happen and I apologize. I have accepted it. Life is just a little bit nuts right now Uh, and that really works well for today's episode, which I'll talk about a little bit later. We're talking about acceptance and commitment therapy. So is it just me or was January just an incredibly exhausting month? We started the new year all bright and shiny, and then it just all went sideways. So I really feel like we kind of need a fresh start on 2021, and I am declaring February 1st, New Year's Part 2. I will be doing a fresh start on the new year, and I think that you should join me. Um, Just let's declare 2021 a do-over, and we can just start the year new. I kind of feel like the year can just get rolling now that we got that first month out of the way. Today, we are revisiting the topic of insomnia, which I think is really timely. Um, I know that I have been feeling tired and Um, You know, we've just come through the winter. A lot of us are shaking off kind of the winter doldrums. We're still in a very dark part of the year in many parts of the country and world. And, you know, we may be experiencing some changes in our sleep patterns. Chances are you or someone you love, maybe someone in your household has experienced insomnia. Some studies put the prevalence of insomnia as high as 50%. Around one in four adults develop insomnia each year. And if you have a teenager or a young adult in your household, you know that insomnia can be a big issue for them too, as their hormones change and their sleep patterns shift. Insomnia is considered chronic. If a person has trouble falling asleep or staying asleep at least three nights a week for three months or longer. And insomnia can really be a persistent challenge. It can be something that people experience at different periods during their life. And some of the things that we do to treat insomnia, like popping a sleeping pill, napping through the day, um, trying to go to bed really, really early to try to get ahead of it, some of those things can actually make insomnia worse. So today we're gonna talk about treating insomnia with cognitive behavioral therapy, that's CBT, um, and acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT. These are incredibly effective, drug-free, and something that you can learn and practice over time. My guest is Dr. Colleen Ernstrom. She's a licensed clinical psychologist with a specialty practice in acceptance and commitment therapy. Her areas of expertise also include insomnia and other sleep disorders, anxiety, and depression. She's the co-author of the book, End the Insomnia Struggle, a step-by-step guide to help you get to sleep and stay asleep. And that offers a comprehensive personalized sleep program that integrates the physiology of sleep, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, and acceptance and commitment therapy. She's currently working in the Counseling and Psychiatric Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. Dr. Ernstrom reached out to me after reading my article in the December Costco Connection. The article was called A System of Sleep, 
we started corresponding about her book. I've gotten so much good feedback about my episode on CBTI. I've mentioned before that I want to do more coverage of this topic. I think it's such an important thing for people to know about. I wish more people knew about this. And I do wish that there were more practitioners out there working on it. Um, and since there aren't, I mean, there are practitioners working in CBTI across the country, but it can be difficult to find one and get an appointment with one. So it is something that you can start to learn about and um, through workbooks and various books and online resources, you can start to integrate some of these components into your routines at home. And it's just something that you can learn about. It doesn't have to be a big intimidating thing that you need to enter into a course of therapy with a professional and go through your insurance and all, these, all of these different things that can just be something that you learn about and they can shift the way that you're approaching your own sleep problems. So I really wanted to feature another CBTI practitioner on the podcast. I'm really excited to have Dr. Ernstrom here today. And I think that we're going to get a lot out of this conversation. So let's get to it. Good morning, Dr. Ernstrom. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad I got the chance to look over your book. It is a really comprehensive resource and it's kind of a workbook. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey to creating this book and why you decided to approach it in this way instead of kind of a reference manual? It's sort of a, a workbook. I mean, it's it's the size of a workbook. It's, I would say, eight and a half by maybe 10 um, and something that you could really kind of keep by your bed and sort of work through gradually. Yeah, we, we think of it as a choose your own adventure personalized workbook. And it's the culmination of 10 years of clinical work, um, not only of mine, but my um, colleague, Alicia Bross, who is the co-author on the book. And we worked and um, had been working for many years on sleep issues and really work well as a team. And we were presenting at a conference about our ideas of how to optimize this behavioral model for sleep. And um, we were approached by a publisher that said, would you think about putting this into a book? And for anyone that's written a book, it sounds like that's an easy task, but when you actually put it into writing, it's pretty complicated. And so um, from that, it became a real exercise in how do we make this feel personal while also staying true to the fidelity of the model. Right. And when did your book come out? Was that in 2020? It came out in 2016. So the oh, process okay. started in 14. Yeah. And then it came out in October of 2016. Okay. Well, the reason I asked is this last year has just been such a roller coaster in terms of um, people's sleep and what they're experiencing, um, anxiety, depression, and then, you know, the sleep struggles that can come along with that. Um, what was that like to, I guess, how did um, it change marketing your book and, and how did people's approach to this change in terms of the people that you're working with um, over the last year? Yeah, I think, I think for all of us, um, this has been an issue that was, um, it predates the pandemic, but it has really exacerbated and created a sense of urgency. So I think people, you know, sort of had in the back of their mind, this is something I want to be aware of. And as it became much more problematic and more of an acute issue, people are paying more and more attention um, on how to directly address and target the sleep problems. 
Right. Yeah. I think um, you're right. It seems like people became more aware of it and wanted to do something about it. Um, but then at the same time, it became more difficult to maybe get an appointment with a practitioner or even to see their primary care doctor because our approach to healthcare just completely had to shift and in 2020. So it's helpful to have this kind of manual that they can work through on their own. Exactly. Um, and that's when books and podcasts, uh, I mean, are so helpful because people can access them from anywhere. Right. And I'm so glad to just have the opportunity to get the word out about CBTI um, because it, it, you know, is something that is such an effective treatment that, and I think um, not enough people know that um, it's actually the first line treatment for insomnia. So can you talk about um, just for people who are unfamiliar or maybe didn't hear my previous episode about um, CBT um, and CBTI, just what are these acronyms and kind of what do they mean and how do you combine CBTI and ACT um, to address this insomnia? Yes. And I, I will put in a plug. I listened to those podcasts and they were fantastic. So I think um, listen to them all because the more you hear it, the more it really lands. And there are a lot of acronyms. And so listening to things, you know, sort of from several different perspectives can really help us to clarify it. So, so CBT is an acronym that stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy and cognitive is just an, another word for our thoughts. And it's a therapy that addresses our thoughts and our behavioral choices and how they impact our daily lives. And I think it really makes the most sense to talk about it in the context of an example. So um, I'm just gonna ask you a couple of questions. Um, imagine that you are um, in your car and you're driving somewhere and you're just doing your thing and all of a sudden somebody cuts you off and almost hits you. Um, what is your thought in that moment? Oh, um, am I okay? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's no right answer here. It's just an immediate, am I okay? And how does that make you feel? What can you imagine physiologically you would experience when you're like, am I okay? Just kind of a fight or flight response, I guess, a, a, a stressful, um, just a lot of stress, I think, or, or, yeah. or sort of kind of an out of body experience where you're just like, it, what just happened? <laughs> right. We literally will have a hit of adrenaline and a, mm -hmm. and a real sense of the body preparing to make sure we're okay. And if we're not, what are we going to need to do about it? And how are you likely to react if you have that thought, am I okay? And you're having this activation in the body. You just feel like you said, activated, um, very tense and wired. Yeah. And, and a behavioral choice. Can you think of um, what you might, what you might imagine you, yourself to be doing? Oh gosh. Um, well, tensing, tensing all the body, preparing, protecting yourself. Um, totally. um, yeah. Taking a posture that protects yourself. Exactly. And this is where language can get kind of colorful. Some people will talk about road rage where they might swear or flip somebody off. Somebody might want to pull over to take a deep breath. Somebody might, you know, want to go up and, and get close to that other car. There's no right or wrong here. We're just really reflecting on how the thought impacts the experience and the feelings, which then impacts our behaviors. And we can go back and we can see if um, we have a different thought, if somebody has the thought of, um, oh, what a jerk, I can't believe that that person did that to me, that that would have a different impact on our physiology and a different impact on our behavior. And again, if we go back, if somebody has a thought of, 
oh my gosh, I'm so glad I took that defensive driving course. I feel like I really know what to do here. How that's also going to have a different impact on the way that we experience it and ultimately how we feel like we can react. And so CBT is about really understanding that relationship between our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors as a way to navigate um, feeling as though we can, can make choices in the world that work for us. Okay, right. So making choices um, in the world as opposed to feeling victimized by the situation. Yes. Always. Exactly. And we can go after the content of the thought. You know, our thoughts are just hardwired. If we have a thought, am I okay? We didn't choose that thought. That's just a reaction. But from there, we can say, okay, and what other thoughts can I encourage or, or sort of imagine like maybe this person didn't mean to, maybe they didn't see me. And we can generate um, some other possible thoughts that will help us to have a broader understanding of the, the perspective. So CBT is really based on that content level of the thought, the content level of our behaviors and how that impacts our, our life. ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, which is really um, cognitive behavioral therapy and, and acceptance and commitment therapy are what we call fellow travelers. They work very well together, but they have some slight differences where CBT is really focused on the content. Acceptance and commitment therapy is focused on the process. So back to that car example, if we're sitting there kind of navigating, you know, what we want to do and what's going on for ourselves, um, no matter what type of thought we have when that person cuts us off, we, um, from an ACT posture, really want to think, so how can I manage this thought in a way that's going to work for me? Because I'm not going to feel, maybe I'm not going to feel so great if, if my stomach hurts or I'm, you know, sort of feeling a little bit of road rage. So how can I work with the process or my relationship with this thought in order to, um, again, sort of optimize what my choices are in this situation? And the choices are really based in what works for me. And that's personal for each person. Right. Okay. And I'm sure we'll get into that in a little more depth later in the interview. Um, I wanted to ask who are the best candidates for this type of therapy? Does it work better for some people than for others? Um, a great question. I think the answer is that it is really great for anybody that feels a willingness and an interest. So this is a non-pharmacological um intervention that is um, really easy to follow. It's easy to navigate on your own if you have, um, you know, an interest in, you know, better understanding how the human mind works. These are all based in, in behavioral science principles, and it really is very satisfying because people start to get a coherent understanding of why minds do what they do. And so I think that that can be really appealing. So the good news is that it's great for everybody. Right. And if you were to begin working with a new um, patient on this type of therapy about, you know, what would you be telling them in terms of what to expect for their course of treatment, how many sessions um, and about how long would it take? Of course, understanding that everybody's different and it varies, but what does a typical course of treatment look like? 
Yeah, so I really highlight that this is a, a present-focused, action-oriented intervention, and that we think of our time in the therapy room um, very analogous to working with a coach, where you would learn proper form and specific skills, and that the more then um, that you practice those skills outside of session, the faster you're going to progress. So there is some traction if you do nothing but show up every week because you're still learning, but um, everything we know about about growth in mental health is really related to the experience of being out in the world and trying things. So um, I really tie it into the more you do on your own, um, the more um, traction you're going to get. And that's the ultimate end goal is for these skills to be um, a part of your world where you are able to access them um, you know, when, when you need them. The traditional um, expectation is that this is typically a 12 to 16 week course of treatment. Um, but I think, again, um, it really also depends on what previous work other people have done. Um, I think we are all learning the value of um, therapy in our wellness. And so I oftentimes will meet people that have done other types of therapy, whether it's psychodynamic or um, insight oriented work. And that also gives people an additional readiness for treatment. Got it. Thank you. And um, one thing that I saw as I was uh, researching for this episode is the concept of CBTI, kind of the, a maintenance therapy approach for somebody who maybe has done this um, and needs to brush up or is then having um, renewed struggles. You know, of course, insomnia um, can be can change the way that we experience these struggles as we're moving through our lives and our hormones change and we age and so forth. Do you um, kind of do that with clients where you maybe have somebody who has done this or, you know, approach it in more of a, a maintenance where they just need a little tune up? Yes, absolutely. I think it's a great um, comparison to our nutrition. So, you know, sometimes following the holiday holidays, people may be in the, the end stages of dry January, you know, you lock down into a more structured program. And then at other times during the year, you're thinking more in terms of maintenance and there's a little bit more uh, flexibility. And so we talk about that a lot with people is that when you're not feeling well and you really want to get back on track, you're gonna have more structure, more specific things that you're gonna be working on. And then maintenance is really promoting or managing or maintaining it. Right. Well, thank you for explaining that. So your book uses concepts related to skiing. I know you're based in Colorado, um, uses these concepts to help people learn about sleep. Can you talk about that a little bit? It's timely in January. The The slopes are crowded here in Washington. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, using um, a metaphor like skiing is a great therapeutic technique. Um, it's really been shown to help um, and be very useful for people to learn concepts um, because we can take um, metaphors allow for us to to take the information that we know about one thing and transfer it to the other. And so we use the metaphor of skiing to really hone in on um, a pretty interesting paradigm shift um, around sleep. And that is, is that our brains are really wired to look at what's not working um, and try to fix that. And what we know is the most sort of sustainable and effective way to use CBTI is to really shift into thinking about how to promote healthy sleep. So we use the metaphor of ski tree, uh, sorry, 
tree skiing um, to really hone in on um, how it's kind of counterintuitive. So when you're learning to ski trees, it's very common to look at the trees. Um, and anyone that has um, gone skiing, we know that your skis will go where you look. And so if you're going to be looking at the trees, then you're going to be headed towards the trees. So it's an interesting experience to train your brain to resist the urge to look at the trees and instead to look at in between the trees or the white spaces. Um, and it's very similar with sleep because again, we, we just wanna sleep, we wanna feel better and we're really wired to, you know, sort of look at the trees or look at the problems and try to fix them. And what we are really encouraging in this book in um, an effective way to use CBTI is to really train the brain to shift into the white spaces and look at where we wanna go rather than where we don't wanna go. Right. Thank you. So you talk about the insomnia spiral. Can you talk about what that is and how people get stuck in that? Yeah. And I think that that really dovetails nicely on that. Um, what we were just saying about how human it is. It is so human to want to feel relief and to want to problem solve and to want to, um, you know, do whatever we can to get to sleep at any given night. And we also know that society perpetuates this idea that if we do it right, we'll be able to manage and control sleep. And so this is a trap that creates a little bit of a spiral because then we try really hard to do things that are going to allow us to sleep now. And the challenge is that these kinds of um, thoughts and behaviors, though they can give us some relief in the short term, are actually um, counter to what our bodies need in the long-term relationship with sleep. Our long-term relationship with sleep is really, really um, grounded in consistency and rhythms and routines. And so this spiral of, of doing all these things to try to help ourselves ends up keeping us stuck. I thought that um, your last guest, I don't know if I'm gonna say her name right, Dr. Rottenberry, she did an excellent job of describing how we kind of get caught in these perpetuating behaviors. And that's where the spiral happens because what humans do is we say, oh, this isn't working. I, I need to try harder rather than shifting to a different um, thought process. Right. Yeah. And I think um, one of my other um, guests, Martin Reed, uh, talked about how um, it's just effort is just the concept of putting effort into your sleep, which we, you know, especially if you're, you're a kind of a type A person who has, you know, struggled with sleep and you just start to pour effort into this problem. And then it makes things worse because, um, you know, he talked about the concept of effortless sleep, which is really appealing, but it's also just a complete paradigm shift in the way that we typically approach a problem that we have. Yes, that's, that's exactly true. And there's even been some really interesting research that shows that um, people that are in this insomnia spiral, you know, are, are putting in too much effort. And that's really difficult for our brains to comprehend. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to put in less effort? Right, right. I know it's just, um, yeah. And so you you mentioned the thoughts and behaviors that we might um, do, you know, when we're struggling with sleep and we want to get to sleep tonight, we we know that we need sleep. We, we have a presentation tomorrow or, you know, we just, we need to get to sleep. What are, can you give some examples of what some of those thoughts and behaviors that we might do that end up not um, not being productive in the long run? 
Yeah, so it, it's very common in human to um, try to instigate the onset of sleep. Some people will use a sleeping medication. Other people will use alcohol, anything where we feel like I must get to sleep right now at, at any cost. Um, and what we know about those um, interventions is that they just um, impact the architecture of the sleep cycle. Um, another really common one is, is I'll, um, I'll take a nap tomorrow or I'll sleep in as a way to um, catch up. And again, that comes from this idea of giving myself more opportunity. But the problem is, is that when we give our bodies more opportunity or opportunities at different times of the day, that the body starts to create these new patterns and saying, oh, now I'm supposed to sleep at this time rather than this time. And so it confuses sort of the consistency of the, of the sleep. Um, during the day, we're much more likely to skip out on things that are gonna promote a healthy circadian rhythm like exercise. I'm too tired to go and exercise and that can kind of shift things or reach for what we refer to as counterfeits, you know, sort of stimulants. Um, so caffeine or things that are we're putting into our body to kind of help us to compensate. Again, um, they, they help in the short term, but in the long run, then that's going to interfere with the body's natural rhythm. Right. Thank you. Um, so Keeping a sleep log is something that is a component of your approach to treating insomnia. I, and I'm interested to hear how people respond to this in your practice, because I also you know, recommend that parents that I work with and different people keep a sleep log. Um, it can be so effective. I've heard it recommended so many times um, by you know, so many different sleep professionals. And yet it is the one piece of advice that I do get a lot of resistance toward. And it's so simple. It's just a pencil and paper a lot of times. Um, why is a sleep log so important? And how do you kind of get people past that resistance to actually keeping track of their sleep? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's really validating for people to hear that they're not the only ones that kind of dread it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> people I, don't want to do it. <laughs> they, they really don't. It's, it's kind of like flossing. We know it's beneficial, but there's not an immediate feedback loop. I think that's part of what makes it really hard is, is that we don't right. get this, this immediate sense that it's valuable. I think with everything related to CBTI, the more that people can understand the reason behind it, the more likely we are to tolerate it. And it doesn't mean we look forward to it. It means that we see the value of it. And the sleep log is so valuable because because we're actually able to see some patterns over time that we, we just can't catch when we're doing our very natural day-to-day -day kind of check-in. So it's super helpful for, for picking up patterns. The other thing is, is that um, we as humans tend to measure success based on how we feel. And that's not gonna work with sleep because even if we're actually improving our sleep overall, we're gonna have days when we don't feel well, when we feel tired, when we feel fatigued. And if we use our emotional state as a measure of effectiveness, um, that's not gonna be um, accurate or helpful. So we really use the sleep log as a compass of effectiveness so that we can continue to to feel some motivation, even if I feel awful today, I can look and see that overall I'm trending in the right direction. So I think when we, we get at the reason for things, um, I think it, it can be helpful. 
Right. And it, I think it's important also to note that it doesn't have to be perfect. And I think that's where people come in and say like, well, I don't know exactly when I fell asleep. You know, that's, I'm struggling. I, you know, I lay in bed, I toss and turn for an hour or two. And so they don't really know how to approach it. And it's not, um, it doesn't end up being as perfect as they want it to be. And that's, or, you know, I missed a morning or I missed a night. And so, and that's, again, goes back to the wanting to pour in effort and wanting to kind of get a gold star for your, you know, your, your yeah. insomnia um, approach. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It's just, I think, doing the best that you can with it and being as consistent as you can. And then, like you said, you see the patterns over time. Yeah, I think that's super helpful to remind people not nobody's is perfect because even even if you use instruments like Fitbits and things to measure exactly we know yeah. fallible too. Right. Oh, totally. Yeah. And that's what I've seen in some of my interviews with um different people because I'm kind of fascinated with sleep tracking technology and how it works. And I've done some reporting on it and it's just, um, it is really interesting. And the deeper that you delve into the world of sleep tracking technology, you see that it's a very much an evolving science and it is not as accurate as we think it is. And in most cases, if you really get down to the nuts and bolts, your sleep practitioners are just going to recommend that you go with your pencil, pencil and paper because the sleep data, um, just isn't, it isn't quite there yet. Um, it's getting there, getting better. And it, it could be useful data. Um, I guess, how do you approach that with people if they are using, you know, a fitness tracker or a sleep app? Do you still say, you know what, that's fine, but please do your sleep log, um, you know, as well? Like, how do you approach that if someone's like, but I have it on an app? Right. Well, I think, um, I, I think it goes, it comes down to willingness. And one of the things that I know is that if I ask somebody to do something that they're not willing to do, they're probably not going to come back. Oh, that's <laughs> so true. I think being able to meet people with where they are willing and to really shape the behavior over time. So we might start with, you know, one small step with the idea that over a couple of weeks, we're going to build towards that program. So I think that that's a huge part of thinking uh, I, everything you're saying really just maps on so nicely with the actual interventions themselves too, because people can feel overwhelmed by some of the requests of what they're being asked to do behaviorally and being able to, you know, sort of start out and shape and take these small steps that move um, forward. I also feel, again, like people, once they understand the value of it, are more likely to um, increase their tolerance level and having more than one um, way of collecting data just allows us to be more optimal with that information. And when people think about it that way, like this is, this isn't an instead of, this is an, in addition to, and then we can look at it at many different perspectives and really understand it in a, in a more integrated way. People tend to be more willing. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. One thing I did want to ask before we get too much further in the interview is sort of what might a typical appointment or session look like um, early in the process for someone um, addressing this kind of in a sort of traditional in-office appointment, or maybe if you're doing telehealth, kind of what would you spend your time doing in during that session? Yeah, so um, one of the things that we really um, underscore is assessment. Um, so in our office, if somebody's coming in and they're going to want to initiate a, a CBTI um, 
protocol, then we really want to make sure we, we do a pretty thorough assessment. So we have them um, fill out some questionnaires about what their current thoughts or attitudes are around their relationship with sleep, what their current behaviors are, what, what they already know or what they already practice in terms of sleep hygiene. We're also doing some rollouts to check to see whether or not they are going to need to go to any medical professionals to look at any kind of um, problems that are medically based, such as sleep apnea. Um, we always make sure to encourage people if they haven't had a physical in um, the past year to get that done, um, because this is both a, you know, a psychological experience and a physiological experience. And we really want to make sure that people are healthy and that we haven't missed something like um, you know, like, um, like their thyroid is off and that's impacting mood and sleep. And, and we just want to make sure that we're really looking at it in an integrated approach. So we do a pretty thorough assessment um, and get a sense of um, where they feel stuck. And then we really talk um, a lot about sort of why we ask people to do what what they're going to do. You know, it's cognitive behavioral, which means that there's both thought components and behavioral components. So we really explain how the research shows that doing some of both is the most optimal and most effective over time. And then really thinking about based on the types of sleep problems that they're having, which interventions make the most sense. So for some people, they have more trouble falling asleep. For other people, they don't have any problem falling asleep, but they wake up repeatedly during the night. For some people, it's both. For some people, they're sleeping, but they're not feeling like they've got this, this restorative sleep and they're feeling fatigued during the day. So really getting a sense of how the sleep problems are showing up because that really drives which components of the model we, we start with. Okay, all right, thank you. And so I wanted to talk about sleep hygiene. That's becoming a more familiar term to people these days. I think maybe 10 years ago when I started um, this work, right, you know, writing and reporting about sleep, um, most people hadn't heard the term sleep hygiene. It was just something that I heard from um, practitioners and physicians that I would interview, but now I think it is more commonplace. And, you know, most people have uh, that sort of associations with sleep hygiene. So the big no-nos, turning off your electronics well before bedtime, you know, sleeping in a dark space. I wanted to ask if there's more kind of surprising aspects of sleep hygiene that are impacting people's sleep that they might not know about and any ways that people are kind of making gains um, relatively easily by just adjusting some aspects of their, their sleep hygiene. This is such an important part of this work. I'm so grateful to have the platform to, to say a few things about sleep hygiene. So back to what we were talking about with the uh, skiing metaphor, one of the biggest paradigm shifts that we encourage people to make is to really see sleep hygiene as a way of promoting your sleep rather than fixing your sleep. So sleep hygiene is like oral hygiene, like flossing. It is meant as a preventative measure to promote optimal health overall. And um, a lot of people will try sleep hygiene um, with, and again, they're set up to believe this, this isn't their fault, but with this sense that if I cut out caffeine or I you know, limit my screen time that I'm gonna start sleeping better 
pretty immediately and being able to really explain, no, this is about promoting healthy sleep over time. I think um, as, as wonderful as it is that we now do know more about sleep hygiene, it can feel really overwhelming to people because they can see a list of 20 things that they're supposed to try. And I really discourage people from trying all of them all at once, because I think that that is not only overwhelming, but then you really aren't sure which ones are, are most supportive for your healthy sleep. Right. Yeah. That's um, a big one. Yeah. And, and then people kind of swing in the opposite direction where they just try one thing. And what we know is, is that that one, any one sleep hygiene um, intervention by itself, isn't likely to, to be promoting sleep in the way that we hope it will. So what we recommend is that you, um, again, go back to that assessment. There's a great assessment tool about, um, you know, sort of which sleep hygiene, you know, it feel you're already doing and, and picking three or four of the sleep hygiene um, tools so that you've got a, a collective program um, based on your sleep problems. And that typically feels a lot more workable. And we really wanna um, continue to remind people that this isn't something that's gonna give you an immediate relief. Sleep hygiene, again, is gonna be something that really helps promote healthy sleep over time. And that's the only other thing I wanna say about sleep hygiene, um, which is super important to me, is um, because it's about promoting sleep rather than fixing sleep, a lot of people get frustrated when they've got some um, notable problems with sleep and they're told just to try sleep sleep hygiene. Sleep hygiene is a part of CBTI, but it's not CBTI. And the best way to think about this is that if you were, you know, flossing and using fluoride and brushing your teeth and you still got a cavity, you wouldn't expect your dentist to say, oh, you're just going to floss that cavity away. The dentist is then going to have an additional intervention to manage the cavity. You're still going to continue to floss to avoid future cavities, but it's, it's a secondary program. And that's what CBTI is. When people have um, you know, three months or more of more nights than not that they're not sleeping well or they're feeling like they're not rested during the day, then we want to add in, in addition to the sleep hygiene, the CBTI program. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great explanation. And I like the way that you, um, you know, said approaching it in a way that it's kind of a preventative measure, like, um, because that, that does sort of in, that speaks to the way that I have started to think about sleep and protecting sort of as a sleep hygiene is a protective measure to, to protect the time that you have for sleep. So instead of thinking about well, I need to fall asleep at 10, I need to wake up at six, you know, and how can I make that happen? Just think about carving out a time during the day when I am protecting a time for sleep. I'm not forcing sleep to happen, um, but I'm putting these things in practice that will uh, protect that time and make that more likely to happen. So thinking of the things that we do kind of in a protective or a preventative way um, is a great way to, to think about it. It's sort of been a shift for me as I've interviewed so many people for this podcast and kind of some of them are sleep professionals and some are professionals in other areas of health and wellness, but they all kind of have informed that view of, you know, that you sort of carve out this time that's protected and maybe it's a time for rest and maybe it's a time when you actually sleep. Um, but yeah, I, I really like that approach and it's kind of something I've gradually been moving toward myself. Yeah. I, I think it's so relieving for people to hear that because 
we have really insightful, hardworking people trying to effort their way into sleep and they're frustrated. And so to be able to hear actually more effort is counterproductive. Let's think about this in a very different way. I think it creates some relief and some opportunity. And it, it's wild that, that it's a shift, you know, because the culture has really promoted a different story. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. When you take the pressure off of yourself and off of that, um, you know, I need to sleep right now, I need to get sleep tonight, then it is amazing how much more restful um, your time can be, whether or not you are actually sleeping. And that's why just to go back to the episode with Martin Reed again, it was a great, um, you know, as a sleep professional, to hear someone who is not chastising people for not being in bed for eight hours or not, you know, saying, well, you know, you, if you're only getting six hours of sleep, because that's really the message that we get from a lot of this type of um, content is, you know, the women only sleep an average of six and a half hours a night and that's not enough. And that's why we're all too tight, you know, and you just, it piles on this pressure. Um, And so just to say, well, you know, if you actually can get six hours, good hours a night, you're probably going to be okay. Um, You know, and you just, you start where you are and work from there. It's a really helpful message. Yeah. It fits so nicely with what we were saying earlier about why CBT and ACT are such great resources. Because if you go back to having that thought, how that's going to impact your physiology and then ultimately your choices. Right. Yep. Um, So I did want to talk about, since we we just mentioned um, the time that you spend in bed, sleep restriction has been a part of this type of work for many people. So um, shifting the time that you're in bed, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the sleep restriction aspect of this work and how that can play into this? Um, How do you have people approach this and why why is it um, potentially helpful? Yeah, so so sleep restriction is one of the choices under the behavioral menu of the CBTI protocol, and it really would be better named um, uh, restriction time in bed restriction because it's really based in this idea that we have this natural tendency to give our bodies more opportunity to sleep when we're not sleeping well, as an attempt to try to recoup or make up sleep. But again, like we talked about, it actually has a counter impact to the consistency. So if somebody is um, sleeping eight hours a night and then they're not sleeping as well, so they start staying in bed for 10 hours at night um, thinking, oh, I'll give my, my body more of a chance. What actually happens is that the brain after you know numerous times of saying, oh, instead of being in bed for eight hours, we now are given 10 hours. So we need to do our work over 10 hours. And so it starts to take that eight hours and stretch it out and get it done in 10 hours. And what we typically see in those situations is fragmented or thinned out sleep. So this is our understanding um, for a lot of people as to why they have these um, middle of the night awakenings and that that sleep is getting rather fragmented. So sleep restriction is based on the idea that we would restrict the amount of time in bed, asking the person to stay out of bed in order to then send the message to the brain no, no, we're not going to do this in 10 hours. We're going to go back to doing it in less hours in order to compress or increase um, the, um, the, not efficiency, but the, um, the, the healthiness. I, I can't think of the word, but um, to have more effective sleep 
it'll come to me in just a minute. <laughs> this is one of the this is one of the things that we um, really really talk about um, pretty clearly in the book is that when we first learned about CBTI and how it was helpful, we had much more of a strict approach that everybody should be doing everything. And we don't take that approach anymore. We don't recommend sleep restriction for every single person. We recommend sleep restriction is mostly um, uh, recommended if somebody um, measures that time in bed and then measures the time that they're actually sleeping and their average time of time sleeping divided by time in bed, which we call sleep efficiency. If your sleep efficiency is below 90%, then we um, recommend sleep restriction. But even then, if that sounds like torture and you don't feel like that's a sustainable intervention for you to try, we're, we're learning that that's not fair of us to then say, well, you should do that anyways. We might start with some other behavioral um, interventions that will help prepare somebody for moving towards sleep restriction. Um, but we really do um, recommend it in situations where people have a low sleep efficiency because the research shows that it's very, very helpful in getting the brain to compress that sleep. Right. So um, it sounds like you're talking about um, helping someone to support more continuous sleep during the night and more sleep efficiency. So um, someone is feeling more rested when they wake up instead of kind of tossing and turning all night. Um, but what about someone who is having trouble falling asleep at night? Is, it, is one component of the sleep restriction, you know, delaying bedtime until you feel tired enough to fall asleep within a shorter period of time? Um, or is it more for people who are sort of having that middle of the night awakening, can't get back to sleep, yeah. um, that kind of thing. So it's, 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 it's original intention was targeted to people who were having uh, the middle of the night awakenings and that people that were having more trouble falling asleep, um, we would lean more towards stimulus control or boots and technique. What we now know is that we use them a little bit more interchangeably and some people will even do a hybrid where they do both a stimulus control and a sleep restriction program. Um, so we're really trying to tailor it more so to um, what people feel like they can do, because in both cases, you know, it, the the intention of this behavioral um, protocol is really to not only um, have a, a strong sleep drive at the time that your body is ready to sleep, but to also promote a, a rhythm where the body knows this is the time to sleep. And also, this is the time to wake. So a big part of um, sleep restriction and stimulus control are um, about, you know, sort of setting the same wake time every single morning so that we can create this rhythm and this trust in the circadian pattern of wake and sleep. Right. That's such a big thing. And I, I won't harp on it too much because I've spoken about this on many other episodes, how, you know, um, just creating a consistent wake time has been a huge game changer for me personally. Um, and just having that time where, you know, whether you have a great night's sleep or not, just, you know, that you're getting up at a certain time during the day and not really varying that too much, um, has been huge and, um, is one of the, I think, easiest things and, and fastest things that people can implement to really um, start to maybe see some difference in their sleep because it's so much easier to fall asleep at night um, when you have, uh, when you're waking up at a consistent time in the morning and a lot of um, sleep struggles just will kind of resolve sometimes. Yeah. 
I, I completely agree. And that's an excellent example of somebody who probably needs a sleep restriction program, but isn't feeling ready or willing to do that. It's a great place to start. Let's start with getting up at the same time every day. And it's, it's, it's not always easy to get out of bed, but it's much more manageable to get yourself um, into a wake state. You can't force yourself to be sleepy. You, you know, you can't go to bed before your body is ready. So anchoring that on the morning end is a great first step. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I do um, like the term anchor because that is really what it is, is you have your anchor time and you can swing it by a few minutes, you know, plus or minus um, if you need to, but really kind of keeping that anchor there and keeping that consistent and not varying it uh, by much. And it, it really does make a huge difference, especially if you're somebody who I think coming out of the, you know, years when my kids were really little and we were waking up a lot at night. Um, and you know, you kind of think, well, I, I just need to grab sleep where I can. Yeah. Um, so if I have the opportunity to sleep in a little bit this morning, I'm going to do that. Um, you know, and then kind of realizing, oh, you know, that is actually not, not serving me. Um, as, as much as tempting as it sounds, it's so much of this is kind of counterintuitive. Um, you know, you just have to approach it in a different way. And then it, it all kind of, um, starts to, to make sense. Yeah. I love the metaphor that you're using of the anchor, because I think what that does is it really gets people to immediately understand that tolerating that discomfort will serve the greater good and the longer term relationship with sleep. And there's some great research about how much sleep is anchored, not only by that timing of getting out of bed, but also things like consistent mealtimes, because the gut and the GI system is also an anchor for circadian rhythms and sleep. I know it is amazing how all of these things are, are linked. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, um, I would, when parents are struggling with their, um, young children waking up at, you know, four and five in the morning. And the first thing that we do is, you know, well, okay, you're up. So here's some food, um, you know, but that really programs the circadian rhythm and, and begins to set a pattern of starting the day way, way earlier than the family wants to. So yeah, it is just so interesting how the, um, and exposure to light, of course, too, um, how all of these things are connected. Yeah, I think there's so much overlap too with, you know, parenting and you think, oh, oh, just this once. <laughs> right. <laughs> I read once, if you hear yourself saying that you're in trouble. And I think that's, you know, sort of with, with gentleness and compassion, really checking ourselves and recognizing that, you know, once that starts a pattern, it's a lot harder to get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so your book talks about creating a designated worry time. I really like that concept. I think it could be helpful to a lot of people, especially, over the last year, as we've seen, just there's a lot of worry and anxiety in the world. What is this um, in your practice and how, how can people put this, um, put this to work for them? Yeah, this is a great technique and, and a great resource. It actually, so it's a traditional um, skill from cognitive behavioral therapy, and it originated in the realm of anxiety, specifically around generalized anxiety, where people have this sort of free-floating sense of dread, but it doesn't feel tied to any one particular issue, which I think in the pandemic, we're all feeling <laughs> certain versions of that. And so it comes, and, and of course, because so much of 
um, sleep challenges can be tied into anxiety, whether it's anxiety about the sleep or anxiety about other things that show up at sleep, um, that um, the sleep world and CBTI um, adopted this intervention pretty quickly. Um, and really based on its title, designated worry time, what it's really doing is training the brain um, to worry at a certain time and to also make sure that we pay attention to our worries during the day. Because what we typically experience if we're busy during the day and we're working or taking care of our kids or doing things, we have enough to occupy our mind. Um, but then we go to bed and a lot of people will talk about this um, tired but wired feeling. They put their head on the pillow and all of a sudden all these things that they're worrying about show up or they wake up in the middle of the night thinking about something they haven't done. And we understand that part of that is, is that our brain is fine, finally quiet. And so all of the things that we need to attend to are, are popping up. And so designated worry time involves us practicing um, both at bedtime and during the day. So at bedtime, um, what we recommend is that you have a anything, a notebook, a piece of paper, an index card, whatever you want. And when you have these worries show up, you write them down and you um, say, I will attend to these worries at my designated worry time. And then we ask people to set up a consistent time during the day. Earlier in the day is better, but we take what we can get. I, I lean towards consistency because if you do it at the same time every day, you know, brains like patterns, we're more likely to remember that. And during that designated worry time, and, and there's, there's wide variability. I think in the book, we might even say 20 minutes, but I think sometimes that can be too intense for people. It's okay to start with five minutes. We, we set our time as designated worry time where we process and sit with and acknowledge these feelings and these worries. And it's not about how to do the worrying. There's no right way to worry. It's about training the brain that if we process these during the night, I'm sorry, during the day, then we can train the brain to trust that it doesn't have to show up during the night. But of course, you're wanting people to do this um, far enough ahead of bedtime so that they're still able to wind down, right? Yes, I prefer before lunchtime. But again, I like to meet people wherever they are. But yes, if you do it before bedtime, then we're really just doing what the brain's already going to do, which is bring up all these things. Right, right. Well, I wanted to ask if there is something that you recommend um, listeners can kind of do, maybe if they're not quite ready for this type of therapy, or maybe they've done it in the past. Um, is there something kind of simple and easy that somebody could do starting maybe tonight? Um, to just help put them on the right track um, with uh, their sleep? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, I think really being um, attentive, you know, in, in the world of CBT and ACT, we really um, recognize uh, how beneficial awareness is and um, really thinking about our own experiences through an objective eye that's something that we can all start to do that isn't something that we, we naturally do. It's another one of those counterintuitive moves. Because we care so much, because it's our life, we come at it from a lot of, um, I need this to work, I need this to be okay, and being able to start to practice. Yes, of course I need all of those things. And if I start looking at what my um, behaviors are and what my patterns are from an objective view, 
then I can start to get a sense of where I might want to eventually um, try something different. Sometimes we get this pressure, it's not working, I need, need to do something different, but we don't always have a sense of what we're currently doing. So that, that assessment from an objective perspective, I think can actually do, go, go a long way to promote readiness and willingness. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been so interesting and I think it will be helpful to a lot of people. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Well, the book is available at all the, um, you know, kind of major sites like Amazon and, and all the bookstores. Um, my, um, my website is impactpsychcolorado.com and then Alicia's is um, bouldercbt.com. And I just, you know, this book wouldn't have happened without my co-author, Alicia, and she does some great work and workshops and trainings on CBTI. So she's also um, a great resource as well. Well, thank you to both you and Alicia. I'm very glad that I have this resource in my home now. I think it will be very helpful. And I'm just so glad that you were able to share your expertise with us. And, and I just want to say thank you for um, what you're doing, because I think it's um, actually really hard to do what you're doing, which is to have the information and get it out to people in, in a way that you're doing. So thank you for making all this information available for people. Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. It is something that's been a great learning experience for me and just kind of fun and interesting um, as I've gone along this journey and, and just collecting resources um, and then, yeah, wanting to, to share those with people and make them available. And the great thing about podcasts is people can come back to it when they're ready. Um, they can re-listen to it if they need to get a concept again. You know, it's just such a great um, medium and platform for this type of thing. Yeah, it's wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. It's the Sleep Well, Stay Well podcast. Now you know. Thanks for checking out the show.